Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, welcome to another Word in Your Ear. Now, there are two main strands to the Shane McGowan story. One is his magnificent songwriting, and the other is a life so self-destructive that it seems to defy medical science that he's still with us. And uh, both are examined in fantastic forensic detail in this great new uh, biography, A Furious Devotion. And I'm talking to the man who wrote it, Richard Balls. Richard, lovely to see you. Now, first thing is, this is an authorised biography. So you've spent a lot of time recently in McGowan world. I mean, obviously, it's going to be a lot less chaotic now. How? What kind of, what kind of life is he leading at the moment? Well, he leads a, a fairly quiet life in in a way. I mean, he yeah. um, his his physical health isn't isn't so great, and that that's not really a secret. Um, I mean, he's been in a wheelchair. Um, you know, when he goes out and and does things, he, he's in a wheelchair. In fact, he got me you know, in a wheelchair when he was married. Um, you know, very recently. So and he's in a wheelchair because he had a fall, didn't he? Isn't that right? Yeah, he had so, a fracture. Yeah. A what about what five years ago? Isn't it? Yeah, I think it was about 2015, so about five, six years ago now, um, he had a fall on a, on, a, on a pavement. He was on the way back from a recording studio, got out of a van, fell over on the pavement. And, um, you know, he, he had a, an injury which was, yeah, pelvis and sort of hip. And the pelvis was fixed, I think, but the hip never really was. So I think the idea was that eventually he would go back to hospital at some point. Um, yeah and maybe have the hip operation that hasn't happened and so he hasn't really kind of walked in that time god that's grim that's that's really really grim yeah so yeah. How, how did you how did you get to meet him and, and kind of and win his trust because you know he obviously had to approve of you to to feel you were the right person to tell his life story to yeah, I mean, you know, I don't really think, to be honest, he wanted his life story told by anybody. I mean, Shane is is uh, is very uh, sort of laid back. He he kind of lives in his in his in his own world, really. Um, I, I wouldn't say he's particularly interested in in having the book done, um, which in a way makes it kind of harder, I suppose. I I got the trust because I interviewed him for a book that I did about Stiff Records. Um, I remember it. We talked to you for this podcast. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, exactly. And I think what happens is, as you do one book, so I did the Ian Jury book, and that probably led to the stiff one, and then the stiff one has led to the Shane McGowan one. Um, uh, I interviewed him for that. 
found him fascinating. Shane is a very, very intelligent, um, you know, frighteningly so, actually. Um, amazing intellect, uh, razor sharp um, sort of wit and awareness. Even when you think he's asleep, he's not. He's listening in and he'll just suddenly wake <laughs> up and say something, say something pertinent. Um, and uh, yeah, the, 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 the crux of it really was uh, Paul Ronan, who's one of Shane's oldest friends, uh, facilitated that interview. That's how I got to meet Shane and have a drink with him uh, in London that time. And um, I stayed in touch with Paul. And then when I wanted to do a book about Shane, you know, Paul, you know, raised it with Shane. Shane didn't have any objection. And um, then I started to go to Ireland with Paul uh, and, and spent a lot of time. I watched a lot of the World Cup with Shane, just sat in his sitting room beside him, um, just chatting away. And uh, it's a bit. Uh, somebody has. Uh, I mean, so that that got me into the inner circle, as it as it was, as it were. So I was actually sometimes I would actually stay there, uh, in his flat, and um, you know, it, it, someone likened doing uh, trying to interview Shane as, as sort of nature photography. You know, it's like it's like being in what way? Well, it's like you know, you sort of sit for three days in the freezing cold, waiting for a snow leopard or something. And then <laughs> you get two seconds of of of, of footage. Um, and I think the advantage I had at least was most people who've tried to interview him over the years, he hates being interviewed, number one. He absolutely hates it. And number two, particularly hates about being asked about his work. So obviously uh, doing a, a book about, about him and trying to ask him about that aspect was, was, was difficult. You don't get to choose what you ask him about. But why doesn't he want his life chronicled in any way? I mean, his wife, Victoria Clark, wrote a book about him, didn't she? She did, yeah. And, and what did you think of that? Um, he didn't think much of that at all. In fact, I think there's a page at the back which was added in where he actually dis disowned uh, himself from the, from the from the entire project. From a book written by his own wife. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want um, anything written about him particularly. He's actually, uh, to, be, to be fair to him, he's uh, a very shy, I mean, he, he's naturally a very shy person, uh, very introverted, doesn't say a lot. He's, he is not a conversationalist in any way, shape or form. No, I've met him and that's true. I, 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 can, I, can, I can vouch for that. You can but look, just going him. back to the beginning, he, it's really interesting, he was born in Kent. So he is, I'm strictly speaking, he, he's, he's English, isn't he? Yeah. And then he moved to Tipperary, his parents are both Irish, moved to Tipperary for a brief time. He was only there about till the age of about five or six before they came back to England. Is that right? No, no, no that, that's not no. right. Um, oh, right. This is, this is, um, I, I, whether he's encouraged this, I don't know, but the, a myth has grown up. Well, a lot of myths have grown up around Shane. Um, I mean, he on occasion, he has told people, I think, he, he was born in Ireland. Um, uh, he was born in Pembury Hospital in, in Kent near Tunbridge Wells. Yeah. On Christmas Day. That's why, obviously, where the Messiah complex... No, I know, because that's a... <laughs> That's not that's not fair. Um, and then um, he he lived in England from that point onwards. You know, he never lived in in Tipperary. Uh, he never it, lived there. No. Okay. No. Oh right. I, I, so, but I, I thought so. Didn't when he went out to the Commons and stayed at the Commons with his yeah, relatives? That was just on holidays. From when it was he just was holidays. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and, and to be fair, very lengthy holidays. I mean, he, for yeah. example, he, he loved going there. Uh, and he, he grew to love his aunts and uncles massively. And uh, he sort of, uh, I think because because he was living in, you know, a, a basically a kind of middle-class suburb in, in, in Kent where people wash their cars on a Sunday. I mean, yeah. you know, 
completely normal English upbringing, watching Doctor Who on a Saturday night, top of the pops, you know, like 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 the rest of us. Um, going to Ireland, this place that was literally trapped in time, this kind of time capsule in the middle of Tipperary, uh, he he uh, led that led him to have a very sort of romanticised view of of Ireland. Completely no, because I'm sorry. No, I thought he'd spent a lot more time there. It was just it was obviously just holidays. But then that's the period that made him kind of identify as Irish, really, wasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, he like a lot of in common with a lot of um, second generation Irish people growing up in in England uh, at that at time, 60s, 70s. Um, I think that you get a kind of split um, split identity. Uh, yeah, there's a bit of an identity crisis, really, and a lot of people, you know, you're not really, you're not really Irish because you you weren't born in Ireland and you're not you're not growing up there. You're not really English because your your parents are Irish and that and and you're part of the Irish community and and the you know the Catholic Church locally or whatever. And you know, I think and that's one of the reasons I think why um, you know he found it so inspiring to go to this farm and stay with his aunts and uncles. And he'd help with the animals and the, and the farm machinery, and he'd and it was just literally like a sort of idyllic yeah. uh, landscape for him. So as you say, it was kind of romanticised, completely. I mean, but, but also very interesting. It's a very interesting ch- uh, ch- household, wasn't it? I mean, they were very artistic and very literary. Um, yeah. uh, t- tell us about the kind of things that he was reading by the age of twelve. I mean, you list all the books that he's read. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Well, the authors. Well, one of the things. I mean, I I am always quite. I mean, people have different styles with their writing. I'm I'm always quite forensic um, uh, with with the detail if I can be. And uh, I always felt with Shane that uh, there was a lot more to him than than, than met the eye. Um, I knew it, it had always been said about how what a genius he was as, as a child. But the evidence for that wasn't all hasn't hasn't really been there until I met this guy who was his teacher. Now, this oh is really, yes, tell me about that because he kept his homework, didn't he? That is incredible. And this guy Tom Simpson, who has sadly since passed away, since I um, spoke to him, he was yeah. about ninety when I went to see him. He he kept Shane's literally little bits of paper that Shane wrote on in red felt tip when he was eight or nine. His school book kept all his school books. Um, and, you know, he never did that for any other student. He only did that for Shane. And he had, he had no way of knowing that Shane was going to become famous. In fact, I've actually returned those school books and essays to, to Shane. Um, and they're now in his, in, back in his possession again. But um, he'd identified something because they thought, I mean, quite a few people at school thought he'd read, wasn't he, Dostoevsky and Voltaire? Yeah, yeah. So, when, so it was incredible. So when in the summer, for example, so the, the children would get their, this is at Homewood House School, one, yeah. of the, one of the most exclusive schools, you know, fee paying exclusive school. Yeah, yeah. In common with many punk people. Um, he, he was there <laughs> and he, uh, you know, they'd come back at the end of the summer and they'd say, well, what, show me your reading list from the summer. You know, and the other kids would have like you know whatever like books of for their age, and Shane would have Dostoevsky and you know Graham Greene and you know James Joyce. I mean, he was reading incredibly complex books. He he put his aunt when he was a about ten or eleven. He put his aunt onto reading uh, some some incredible uh, stuff. So it's Samuel Beckett, I think. So he won he, a writing competition, didn't he? When he was I don't know thirteen or something. Is that right? The yeah, in fact. In fact, funny, I didn't know that you were going to mention that, but I somebody found this for me. I'm going to hold this up. Yeah, go uh, on. Children as Writers booklet here. But this is pretty rare, I suspect. Yeah. Dig this out for me on, online. And it's um, award-winning entries from the 12th Daily Mirror Children's Literary Competition. So that's that's it. 
And in this is a poem called To Mac a Bus, which was written by Shane. And so he won this, he won this award. And um, what I found really interesting was looking at those poems and stories that he wrote um, in school. And um, we weren't able to, Shane didn't want us to um, have to, to literally show people what they looked like. But I do refer and quote from some of them in, in the book. And you can see, you know, you don't have to be that sharp to see that the Pogues, some of the early Pogues lyrics are basically, you know, rooted in 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 these these things he was writing when he was a kid. Did he imagine he'd be a songwriter? Let's say. Did he imagine he'd be a novelist? Or, yeah, or I think I think so because um his father um Morris, who's also uh, apart from being a really lovely man, uh, he was ninety two yesterday. Fantastic. So when people say, "Oh, why is Shane still alive?" You know, maybe there's something in that. You know, pretty a, fearsome stock. Fearsome <laughs> stock. <laughs> some genes yeah um, he um uh, you know he thought shane i think would become a writer and uh, i think shane's english teacher also thought that that was the most likely thing but that this 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 child with this amazing uh, writing style and uh, and and fearsome uh, you know summer reading lists would actually become a, a writer not not somebody in music and he was obviously an incredibly intense child. There's a bit where you talk about, I guess he would have been 13 too, uh, because it was uh, the, the year that Jimi Hendrix died. And Hendrix yeah. died, and he spent uh, 24 inconsolable hours in his, yes. in, his, in his bedroom, just staring at the wall. Yeah, That was it. really interesting. I think um, one of the things that, uh, that became enshrined with Shane uh, quite young was the was thing about death. He's, he's got a real thing about death, and actually yeah. death, as as any Pogues fan will know, death features quite quite uh, looms large in the lyrics of the Pogues. There's a lot of stuff about death, yeah, and war and conflict. And Shane took uh, the like when when his aunts and uncles um, sort of shuffled off from the Commons. Uh, he you know he took that really really badly, um, you know. And and death generally he 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 struggles with. I think um, he kind of lives in his head. Uh, I think he internalizes a lot of things. Uh, one of the reasons some people say that he has the television turned up to uh, deafening proportions, and which I can attest to, because when you're trying to interview someone and record what they're saying, well, and, they don't and he won't turn the television down when you're interviewing, and they, and they won't talk very, and they don't talk that's, very clearly in the first place. Nice. <laughs> interviewer's dream, um, but yeah, so and I think that's because he just can't sit and and be with himself. How extraordinary! When, when he. Um, you went to Westminster School, which was a, a you know, mm. London-based kind of yeah. public school. It seemed kind of amazing now, looking back at it. But yeah, and, well, and you know, he was obviously very, very bright and, um, but hated it, didn't he? Oh well, yeah, I mean, it was and was miserable and was bullied. Or yeah, what, what, what was, happened to him there? It was completely the wrong place, I think, because I think Homewood House, um, the 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 head teacher at Homewood House, Bob Baramian, I think, was quite ambitious for the school. Yeah, uh, and he was a bit of a young, thrusting sort of head head teacher, and he he thought this would be a feather in the cap, I think, of Homewood for this this um, you know literary genius to to be to, to, uh, to passed on to, to Westminster. So I think part of the, I mean, his mother was also very ambitious for him. She was very pleased for him to go to another, you know, prestigious school. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the motivation or the, the the sort of impetus for him to go to Westminster came, I think, from uh, from Homewood House, who loved the idea of this. But it was the wrong choice completely. And even Tom Simpson, his English teacher, said that he thought at the time it was the wrong place for Shane. By this time, Shane was, um, I mean, he 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 claimed he was uh, had a role of the minister for torture. 
uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Westminster putting you know nettles down people's pants and things like that you know um so I don't think so much what he's a strange boy <laughs> very strange boy and um you know he 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 has a and he was drug dealing I mean the, the, what what really happened is that he he was caught with some drugs in his possession it went to court um and Westminster knew knew of this and uh, and they basically expelled him and he I think he was only there about 14 months and then he, well, and was was kind of bullied, wasn't he, for just the way he looked and everything? I mean, didn't they just yeah. pick on him as well? Yeah, yeah. And I think you know, and going back to the the sort of second generation Irish thing, I think you know, if you uh, if you already feel that a bit, uh, and you are a bit intense, and you know, you already feel that um, you've got that kind of conflict of identity, but then also you've got this rather odd look. He's got these sort of slightly large ears and more yeah, than, yeah, yeah, an unusual look. And I think um, he used to get beaten up really badly. Um, quite a lot, um, you know. So when when he was out, you know, late a little bit later on, he'd, yeah, there are lots of mentions of that in the book. You know, just just yeah. picked on for just looking hot, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think he's put that down sometimes to, or people have put it down to him having sort of saying things about the IRA and you know yeah. saying controversial things. But I think a lot of the time it was actually just because he looked um, startling. So there was a kind of transformation after he, he was chucked out of Westminster and he went to, I think it was the Hammersmith College for Further Education when he was 16 or whatever, and then was obviously lost and kind of directionless. And then you talk about him going to see Joe Strummer's band, the 101ers, and this being a, a total change in his life. Yeah. He suddenly yeah, had yeah. some kind of direction and it gave him an identity. Explain what happened there. What was what was the connection for it? Well, I, I, uh, I think it's important to say that uh, immediately before uh, the, this gig at the Nashville, uh, in in 1976, uh, Shane had been in a psychiatric hospital. He'd been in Bedlam, uh, what's known as Bedlam Hospital, Royal, Royal Bethlehem Hospital, and he was in there for about six months, five or six months. I mean, you can imagine. I don't think you could kind of understate uh, what that would, what you know, how traumatizing that must have been for a 17 year old. He spent his 18th birthday on a, on a on a ward surrounded by people with you know really very very serious psychotic illnesses. Yeah. Uh, and getting ECT and so on. No, this was completely liberating to get out there and. So he, so he sort of pretty much walked out of of, of there, and then uh, not the first the first gig certainly he went to after leaving hospital was this gig, and you know he would have had no direction at that point, and yeah, and been you know having gone through things were difficult at home. His mother had hated the place they lived in in the Barbican in central London. She was living separately just because she couldn't um, cope with living there. So, so you know, all this up, uprooting at home, upset at home, being in hospital, sees the 101ers, and, but, but more importantly, sees the Sex Pistols, who are the support band. And I think he saw John Lydon and thought, here's, here's a guy who looks pretty unusual, like me. <laughs> um, oh, and he's also Irish. And he's Irish. Yeah, exactly. He's yeah. second generation Irish, and he's yeah. got British hair, and he really stands out. And, you know, this is... This is an absolute, you know, light bulb moment, you know. That whole issue of kind of Irishness and Irish identity is so fascinating. There's a lot of it in the, in the book. And, you know, he formed the the Nips, the Nipple Erectors, and then forms Pogue Mahone. You know, and I remember, because I was working at um, NME and re- reading all the music press at that time, and, you know, the big debate was, um, was uh, really whether or not the purists were saying was, was this proper Irish music? And... Uh, 
were they qualified to play it even if it was as not all of them are Irish and that was a very yeah. big issue wasn't it well yeah it was a big issue I mean when they went there was a great clip and it's, I think it's on YouTube of, uh, the, of the Pogues in RTE for performing on the Late Late Show Gay Byrne presenting that I mean obviously that's an incredibly conservative show um, you know, this is real Middle Island, you know, middle of the road Island. And uh, they went on that, performed Sick Bed of Kilcullen and things like that. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And Gay Byrne at the end of it is kind of uh, saying, oh, what are you? Are you, are you, a, are you a Cayley band? Are you, are you a punk? What, what, what are you? They just couldn't get their heads around uh, the idea that's, that, that this band was doing this, this kind of music. And, you know, I don't think Shane was being in any way disrespectful to Irish music. The purists obviously saw saw them as a kind of like the eighties version of the Dubliners because the Dubliners, I think, had uh, suffered similar uh, when they were performing. You know, there, there were certain pubs that wouldn't let them play for the same reasons, and the purists saw this as some sort of abortion of Irish music. But really, uh, it was the sort of romanticised um, Irish uh, memories and influence of the Commons with the sort of punk spirit yeah. that he saw in the Pistols. And as you say, you know, at the time, it actually took a bit of courage to, 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 to broadcast the fact that you were Irish, because I mean, oh, you know, yeah. the, the IRA bombs and you know. Yeah, the, I mean, uh, I, I, there wasn't until I sort of looked it up. Uh, but when when they were on tour, when I saw the Pogues for the first time, that was when they were on tour with Elvis Costello and the Attractions in in eighty four. Yeah, um, the, the Brighton bombing, uh, obviously, nearly took out Thatcher. That happened during that tour. Yeah. You've got a band going around the country playing rebel songs in in their set, uh, you know, at a time when the IRA are coming. Yeah, carrying, it was an incredibly tense time, wasn't it? Incredibly. And the other thing was that there was a, a, I suppose, a debate which I can remember all these debates because there were newspapers were full of them actually. That that he was somehow perpetuating a stereotype, an Irish stereotype, yeah. and, and wasn't Irish, obviously, of the kind of pissed Irishman, you yeah. know, and. Um, yeah. I think yeah. a lot of people got very upset about that. that was what, what was thing. his reaction to that? Yeah, I think he was just, I think he was kind of perplexed, um, really. I mean, that was part of the, the thing. Um, you know, the black suits, that, that um, those kind of black suits they wore, which was very typical of, of, of Irish people, Irish men in, yeah. in living in England. And that you're right. I mean, you know, that was part of the problem that people initially had with them in Ireland was that they, yeah. they are, because at that time, Ireland in the 80s was trying to become a much more sophisticated country. We're very modern and we, you know, we don't, that's the last image. Yeah, they felt it was dragging them back to uh, the old days, isn't it? Something yeah. that we don't want. Uh, and it was just all Irish nabbies or, and, and that's all we do. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, it, it, but it, it's interesting then, and part of the book, I suppose, is that I saw the book as a journey, you know, that that's one of the things that really interested me in it, is this journey from kind of out, rank outsider looking in through the window. Yeah. Left outside. And then to sort of national hero, you know. Was he trapped to some extent by that character that he kind of played on? Because I remember going to see the Pogues and everyone would expect him to come on stage with a bottle of Liebfrau milk, you know, um, slurring his words, um, spilling cigarette ash all over the place. And and indeed, he, he always did. But, I mean, do you think he was somehow was was somehow kind of imprisoned by, by, by having to act that way because that's what was expected? Possibly. I mean, certainly there was a lot of fans, as you say, would actually wait for him to come on stage and hope that he would be looking terrible. Yeah. And, and if he staggered about it, everyone would start cheering. That's what I remember. 
Um, some members of the band, obviously, uh, in time, found this pretty frustrating to uh, to put up with on on a sort of daily basis, as you as you'd expect. And there's some great stories in the book about about some of the stuff that happens, you know, on on tour, particularly later on towards towards the end. But yeah, I think well, was he trapped? I mean, I suppose in a sense, no, because the Pogues. Um, became household names. I mean, that you know, that was the one of the most extraordinary things that this this band that staggered into view in '84 in these black suits then became, you know, household names. They're on top of the pops of the Dubliners. They were fairy tale in New York. So he didn't get sort of trapped in it in 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 that sense. Um, if he has tra- got trapped in that image, that that's obviously of his own doing because he, yeah. he he's never changed uh, who who he is. But part of what happened. I can remember was that the Irish, uh, the Irish musicians community really endorsed them. I can remember there was a point where Kirst, uh, Christy Moore was was, was playing a, a pair of brown eyes at gigs, and mm. the Dubliners mm. asked the folks to support them. I think a U two, they got a U two support slot, and yeah, Bob Geldof yes. and Van Morrison. And I think that was a real a real turning point, wasn't it? That suddenly, yeah. if all the Irish musicians yeah. approved of them and promoted yes. them, then anybody who was carping about it back in oh, it just fell okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very, yeah. Like if Christy Moore's, yeah, I think that's why. And I think you know when they performed with the Dubliners, I think somebody. Uh, one of maybe one of the pogues said that 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 was when they became kind of uh, accepted more in Ireland because yeah. oh, they're with the Dubliners. Yeah, they they've been uh, you know uh, sort of endorsed by them. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean one of the things I think that's so impressive um, about Shane is you look at the people who you know in in, in the book, for example, who, who've made comments about him. You know, Bruce Springsteen um, saying he's the man. You know, oh, Bruce Springsteen says something like. Um... In a hundred years' time, music might, like mine will not be played, but people will still be listening to the Pogues. Yeah. And do you agree with that? I, I Well, I don't know, about, but I think pe- maybe people will be listening to Springsteen. I don't know. Um, yeah, I do think that. I think a song like, particularly like Fairy Tale of New York, yes, I do think maybe in a hundred years' time, people might still be uh, singing that at Christmas. So I think it's not, not inconceivable. And is that because those are... They're not wildly personal songs. A lot of them are historic songs. They're about historic events. Is that the reason yeah. you think they might? I, I think because, because it's probably the most unusual Christmas song that has ever been written. Yeah, um, and it's you know, and when it was not everyone's cup of tea, I'm sure. But I think it, it it's it's also so fascinating in that song because it's not really about Christmas at all. It's about it's about immigration. It's about people's. Um, you know, unfulfilled dreams. Uh, it's about Ellis Island. It's about all that. Um, you know, what is the, the American history of immigration? That's that's what it's really about. And it's about and Shane's humanitarian. It's it's about people. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, and it's just also an antidote to everything else that you tend to get at Christmas. And it's about yeah. kind of, um, you know, a broken promises and insults and violence isn't it <laughs> junk and you know gang gang fights and domestic grief you know it's really funny it must strike a chord somewhere and you tell us the story about that. it's really interesting you write about that in great detail and that song is so fascinating um it started i think you say in the book and i i, I didn't know this that costello had bet them Elvis costello had been producing the records yeah i read to kate obviously um I bet that they couldn't write a Christmas song without yeah. it being jingly jangly. I think that's how yeah, you yeah. Apparently, that right? that's, apparently that's right. So yeah. that was the challenge. He threw down the mantle. He threw down the mantle. And originally, I mean, Jem Finer uh, and Shane wrote the song. We, we must say that. I mean, it's it's a jointly written song with, with Jem, uh, the banjo banjo player from the Pogues and Shane. Um, and they they worked around, you know, with it. The story, the, the sort of gestation period of that song was really long for, I mean, by, by normal songs. It was, about two, was it about two years or something? Yeah, about a couple and of didn't, years. And Jem, I think Jem originally wrote a song about, uh, a duet about a sailor and his wife. And he, That's um, right. They have a row because he'd uh, gambled all his money away or something. And I think somebody said... That's not right, you know. Change yeah, it. And I think that's right. Different. I think Shane uh, was what well, I think possibly Shane was the one who then uh, set it in New York and and said it would be about about immigrants. Um, but certainly they worked on the song together. Originally, Cotter Ridden uh, sang the female parts. Yeah. Song. Um, uh, this was, I think this goes back to like the days of the previous album, Rum Sodomy, in the last you know something. So it was something they were working on then. Didn't it? Didn't make it onto that record. You know, Costello sort of didn't put it out as a as a single or whatever, and um, then gradually, as the song uh, was developed, um, they were in the studio with Steve Lillywhite because he was producing uh, the next record, which is "If I Should Fall from Grace with God," that album. And he he, I mean, I think it was just one of those fateful things. He said, "Look, I'll take it home." He was married to Kirsty McCall. He said, "I'll take it home and I'll get Kirsty to try that. She can, you know, she can rec- record the, the female parts." And uh, well, you know, but just... they kind of imagined that was going to be a kind of guide vocal, didn't they? Did they? Did they think that was going yeah, to be the finished think, thing? No, I think I think originally it was going to be a guide vocal. Yeah, I don't yeah. Think, and I think when they heard that, when they in the they they played it to them, they're like, "Wow, you know, this that's that that let's do it, let, let her do it. Yeah, let's get her to record it." And he heard her version, uh, her part, and then re-recorded his, didn't he? Thinking, I've That's got to up, up the game. Yeah, oh, It's yeah, an incredible absolutely. record. Absolutely incredible, incredible record. Very powerful. Does, does you talk about him, it's very interesting, all the stuff about how uh, unconfrontational he is. You say, uh, you know, he'd walk to the other side of the world to avoid confrontation. So he, I think somebody says he'd rather cut off his own legs than yeah. have a row with somebody. And it made me think, you know, who was the MD of the group? You kind of imagine it was him, but I guess it might 
have been Jem or it might have been Spider or somebody. I mean, he doesn't look like the kind of person who would have control no. and organise everybody oh, no. and say, this is the plan. Oh, God, no. I mean, he doesn't. No. I mean, Jane doesn't have, doesn't have email. Doesn't. Um, I've never seen him use a computer. Incredible. Um, he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't I mean, he has a phone beside him, but he, he never rings anyone on it. I mean, other people will ring him possibly, but he'll just normally just say, Well, I'm watching television. You know, <laughs> so they, and then and then they just get told to go away. Um, so he doesn't really communicate with, with people. Any communication is done via his wife. I mean, any organizational things are done by her. So back in the days of the Pogues, I mean, one of the things I kind of liked about them, I think, when I saw them um at the UEA that night was that they actually there were lots of people to look at in the group. It wasn't just the fact that you know, he had this mad singer. He had this guy smashing a beer tray off his head. That's right. You had Cart who looked menacing. Uh, you know, so there was a lot of there was a lot of um, uh, people on stage who, who who drew your attention. It wasn't just one kind of lead person. Shane uh, wouldn't know organisation from a hole in the ground. Yeah, and you talk about there's a. Uh, a bit which I, I, again I hadn't taken on board that come on Eileen was one of the things that kind of opened the door for the Pogues. You know there was a kind of roots British roots mu- movement, wasn't there? There was um, yeah. eventually there was the men who could they couldn't hang and uh, yeah, Boot Hill foot tubs and all. But I mean, it, come on Eileen did sort of did change things because at the time, you know, it was Duran Duran, it was Culture Club, it wasn't it, it was electronic pop music and heavy metal and stuff like that. So that, that kind of just just opened the door for a different kind of music. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, Mark. I mean, that, that I think one that quite a few people have, have um, you know, been interested in this in the yeah. book about Dexys because um, Shane uh, worked in a record shop, Rock On, which yeah. uh, around the back of Hanway Street. And I mean, p- people told me that when he was working there, and and was on, incredibly knowledgeable, wasn't he? How people would go in there and ask him oh, for advice. He, and- he knew everything. He knew, knew about Northern Soul, reggae, yeah. everything, you name it. He knows it. He's an encyclopedic knowledge of every every subject. But he played Come On Ireland, apparently, in the shop, you know, nonstop. Um, and it was a kind of gateway, uh, in a way, towards the Pogues. Uh, I mean, as, as a 17-year-old who walked into the UEA in Norwich and saw them in 84, I had no reference points. I'd never listened to Irish music. I'd never listened to the Dubliners, certainly, or the Chieftains or anything like that. Um, the only thing I would have heard, which would have been remotely like it, would have been, um, you know, the Celtic Soul Brothers, come on, yeah. from 2YA. Yeah. You, it's, you talk to a huge number of people in the book. Um, you interview uh, Christy Moore, uh, Nick Cave and Sinead O'Connor and quite, quite a long list of people. What did you learn? Did you learn anything really specific from any of them about him that you'd never taken on board before? What did you um, uncover think, about him? Um, I think certainly, uh, maybe not from those the people that you mentioned, but certainly from um, ex-girlfriends, um, his ex-landlady, uh, Cathy McMillan, who, who came to my um, event at Dublin Castle the other night. She was his... Oh, right. Yeah. She, uh, it's probably worth telling this story. Just no, go on. That people will enjoy it, but when um, Shane was living at her place, he had a, a, a bedroom uh, up up in her house, and um, apparently, if you opened the door, if you dared, literally, it was just a sea of bottles, empty fag packets, ashtrays, and you know, and he'd be sort of somewhere underneath underneath it all. And um, he uh, Hendrix, where the house was, was near where Hendrix had lived. And so Shane was up there and he dropped about 15 or 20 acid tablets on this particular occasion, put Madame Butter Butterfly on. So you can, you can picture the scene now. We've got Madame yeah. Butterfly blaring, 
Shane is, uh, you know, paying homage. He's talking to he's talking to Jimi Hendrix at this point. Yeah, he's having a go, and he he believes that uh, the Third World War is taking place, and that he is the Irish state representative, and that he's conducting summit talks in his kitchen between Russia, China, and the U.S. And to to demonstrate the inferiority of the U.S., he eats the Beach Boys record. See, I, the great Beach Boys' greatest hits. The the the, the girlfriends that you talked about is really interesting because you, you you become rather kind of fascinated reading this by by what it can possibly be like to live with this guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, I mean this, Victoria this, Clark. I mean, he met Victoria Clark. I think she was about sixteen when she met him, and I think they were going out when we ran a cover story about them at Q Magazine, when I was the editor, it must have been about 86, 87. I'm pretty sure they were together then. So yes. they must have been together for 35 years. In fact, they got married not that long yeah. ago, didn't they? Extraordinary yes. thing, Johnny Depp came. But I mean, I, I mean, it's very difficult for you to, to, to answer this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But how does that relationship work? Because it, it seems to me that there's, you know, that, uh, that you can't imagine how... It can be that rewarding to be no, with somebody I, that complicated. Who, to some extent, you must be you're being a carer. Actually, I think it, I, I think they find it uh, very re rewarding, and and you and I and other uh, mere mortals may find that hard. Yeah. To um, they've been together, as you say, a very very long time. You know, thirty five years probably. Got married a couple of years ago in, yeah. in Copenhagen Town Hall. Oh, it was two years ago. Was it? That's right. Yeah, yeah, a couple, yeah, a couple of years ago, and. You know, it's it's a it's literally a, a relationship that's proved to be bomb-proof, really. I mean, at this point, it is, it's incredible. They yeah. split up. They've got back together. It's happened again. They split up. But you know, I think they can't do without each other. Uh, they are very opposite in that. Um, you know, Victoria doesn't. You know, she's she's not a heavy drinker. She's you know she she does yoga. She goes yeah. to the gym. She, she sort of has much earlier nights, you know, goes to bed earlier than Shane, has a normal bedtime and, and, and eats food. And eats I mean, food. And eats food. I mean, that's that's pretty different from Shane. It is, yeah, very much so. He doesn't really eat food, um, you know, very, very little uh, in, in my experience. And the, he, he uh, Steve Lillywhite, one of the, my favourite comments in the book, Steve Lillywhite said that he'd only ever met to people he considered to be true bohemians and they were Keith Richards and Shane and I think probably Shane could even out bohemian I would have thought he could I think he makes Keith probably look quite tame it is it's just eye-watering actually it's incredible uh, you just cannot believe that he survives. It's just astonishing, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean know, there's a bit towards the end where you, you, I suppose you would call the decline you know when he's in the group and it just gets to the point where he would go to the wrong hotel um, you know, and be yeah, in the wrong yeah. around the corner, and misses. Gig. They're actually they're, they do a Dylan support uh, slot yeah. down there on top, and he misses gigs supporting Dylan. You know, these are these great heroes. You think, I How think that's possible. Well, well another, another sort of um, another part of the myth busting, uh, which was part of this book, which is sort of detangling some of these myths that have grown up over the years around his story. Some of them, perhaps deliberately, some some less so. Uh, and one of them is that you know the Dylan thing was was he tried to get on the plane loads of times and the and the the, the air the airplane staff wouldn't they, they the airline staff wouldn't let him on because he was too yeah. drunk and he came back a few hours later and tried again and he was turned away from all these flights. I found out from from my investigations around this episode that he didn't he tried once I think to get on he was so wasted that he was turned away by the airline staff. 
but he, he pretty much then went to back back to Kathy McMillan's, and she told me that she she heard a knock on the door, opened the door. He just sort of went, just fell face onto the ground in her in her hallway, and she was like, Shane, Shane, you're supposed to be in America with Bob Dylan. What what what's going on? And he was like. <laughs> Oh, and she's like, yeah, but you know, and she, you know, Frank Murray was on the phone ringing her flat. Where is he? Where is he? And he just told her, don't answer the phone. Don't answer that. If my parents come around, don't answer the door. Frank Murray, I'm not here. He basically didn't want to do it, and that's and that's Shane, you know. And if he doesn't want to do something, he doesn't do it. Which makes you wonder, you know, obviously how this group managed to put up with him for so long. I mean, obviously they must have just thought, particularly as the press was largely used to be about the Pogues, and it was entirely about him. And they must have just been fixated with this idea that Shane was the absolute heart and soul of the group and that without him they wouldn't survive. Would that be right? Because, I mean, yeah. they must they were trying, thinking, could they get rid of him for a while? And I yeah. suppose to some extent he was hoping to be fired. Would that yeah, be true? Yeah, he wanted to, oh, absolutely. You're, yeah. you're spot on. I mean, you're, you're absolutely spot on. He, he wanted to be fired for a very long time. He wanted out of the group. But again, because he can't confront anything. Yeah, he's, you know, he's living yeah. in you're Shane McGowan, you, that's, not, that's not what you do. So you, instead of confronting things or dealing with things, you um, basically conspire to create a situation where it's actually impossible for, for the people that you're with to continue with you in the group. Um, and, uh, you know, I think in the end, they got him in a hotel room and said, you know, they told him, we're so sorry, Shane. Um, and they'd been dreading this moment. In, this is in a hotel in Japan, dreading this moment. And he just sort of looked. He was. What took you so long? Was it? What took you so long? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, and then, <laughs> and then you know, and I think it was a few. It might have been a few days later. This was when they were still playing in Japan because they had a few more dates left. I think. Um, uh, this they, they went on the bullet train, and Shane discovered that you could drink. You could buy sa- cans of sake. You know, these little things with a little yeah uh, pin, and you could drink that on the train. Well, of course, that's complete loopy juice. And he basically um, went bananas on the sake. And uh, when they were picked up the other end uh, uh, in, a, in a car, they were driven from, from the bullet train to the hotel. Um, the, 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 the driver or whatever the side comes round to, to let Shane out. But by this time, the door has opened, uh, the taxi door or whatever, the car, the car door. And Shane has already fallen face down on the pavement, smashed his face. And broken his teeth. Isn't broken his teeth. Yeah. You know, and he's carried into the hotel in that state. You know, and and that that you know that's why they got rid of him. You know, <laughs> well, because that would it's that sort of something thing. horribly fitting about that as being the the, the, the last exit, really. Yeah, but, but although obviously the reform led, but I mean, were you surprised that he bounced back so quickly, really? Because I mean, he was obviously a lot more driven than I imagined. You know, he 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 done all the various. He recorded with Nick Cave and. Van Morrison got him on stage at the Brits. I can remember to sing Gloria and uh, he formed the Pope. That's right. So were you amazed that he came back so fast or came back at all, actually? Yeah, I mean, looking back at it and, and hearing what happened in Japan and, yeah, the state he was in then, because he was getting on, you know, there was there was the heroin uh, addiction was, 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 in, was starting to be developed at this point. And um, he, he wasn't in a great shape, really. But, um, yeah, I think he has always... Well, well, he was, at that point, very driven. And uh, The Snake is a great record, I, I think. Um, Shane McGowan and the Popes. Uh, if anyone hasn't got that, I really recommend that. There's some really, you know, some fantastic songs on that. Um, and I saw them playing uh, at Flour Moor in Tremor in Waterford, because you know, I was living in Ireland then, and uh, this was about 93, 4. And, uh, you know, I saw that 
pretty ramshackle kind of performance, but the songs were good. And yeah, at that point, Shane was motivated, as you say, he played the song with Nick Cave, What a Wonderful World, although the world he was living in certainly wasn't wonderful. Um, and Van Morrison, as you say, and, uh, but I think it, then the motivation has, has, I think the motivation has, has waned and he hasn't really, I mean, he hasn't recorded any original material since about 97. Do you think he will? Do you think there'll be any more? It's really hard to say. I mean, <clears throat> I know that he has written songs um, in recent years. He's been in the studio with with Cronin, uh, a couple of friends of his, uh, in a band, and they've been recording with him. And, you know, every so often there, there are stories saying Shane's doing this album, it's happening. So, yeah, I mean, it could, it could happen, I guess. But what do you think, per personally, is, is, has been his finest, finest moment musically? Probably, um, I mean, probably "Fairy Tale of New York" because not because it's the not because it's the best known song or or, or it's the one that people will resonate with. I think it's so it's such a clever song. It, it's a like I say because it's about immigration. It's about people. It's it's got everything in it. Like you, exactly as you described, yeah. it's got the domestic argument, the sort of violence. It's I mean you know and, and the, the dashed dreams, yeah. unfulfilled. Uh, expectations of, of other people. Brilliant. I mean, it is absolutely brilliant. But I mean, for me, there are so many songs that I think do, um, that really, I mean, even just thinking about them now, sort of send, you know, give you goosebumps. Um, a pair of brown eyes. Again, you know, I mean, a war, you've got war references in there. His stuff is 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 deep. You know, it, it's, it's, it's got deep references. It's not just about, you know, boy-girl relationships and people relationships. It is about war and death and conflict and all sorts of things, things he was reading about, uh, uh, you know, when he was at school. When you, I mean, you spent all that time with him and, um, you know, got some idea of, 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 of what kind of motivated him. Do, do you think, was there a moment in his life, a significant moment that, that really shaped the person he became? Was, did, was, did there's one event that, that I know, I, formed the character he is? I think probably a few events. I mean, I think um, one would have been the the psychiatric ward, you know, when yeah. he was in, in hospital. I mean, certainly at the age that he was at, 17, yeah. 18, is a very formative age, and that must have been a, 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 a that must have affected him. Um, I think the whole thing of going to the commons, that has been his, that has, he still considers that really to be his home, I think. I mean, it's, it's not really sort of habitable as, as such. As you say, completely romanticised, isn't it? Hanging around... <laughs> Yeah, and farm um, animals, and you know, and Victoria, who, who's who's lovely and was you know really really helpful, and she she said you know that he has a very romantic view of of Ireland, has a very romantic yeah. view, and and, and every, certainly everything that, that he saw in the Commons, and he, he he's often said that was the only happy time in his life. That was in yeah. in his childhood was when he was at the Commons, yeah, on, on these holidays. So um, probably the most that you know that would be the most. Uh, it's not an occasion, but it's the commons where it all, that's where it all goes. Yeah, back. yeah. Really. So it's the bit where you talk about um, Terry Woods, who's been a member of the band for a long time, and uh, yeah. he was in Steel Ice Band, of course. Yeah. And uh, in fact, he's worked with him about 30 years. And you say, you interview Terry Woods, Terry Woods says that after all this time, he has absolutely no idea what makes Shane McGowan tick. Yeah. Have you got any, any... <clears throat> inkling as to what that might be yourself after all the time you spent with him um yes and no i mean you know when you sit with him uh for so long as i've done you know you sit for days and days and he'll just watch tv and just he'll watch he'll watch a film on yeah. deer hunter and it'll be like one of the longest films ever and then as soon as it's finished he just watches it again all over again 
He's, oh, he's obsessive. He watches, obsessive, um, really obsessive. And he, when he watches these things, he's really watching them. Um, not a man of, of many words, not a conversationist. If people have got this idea of sitting around the fireside of Shane chattering away, and you know, that's not at all what he's like. No, as you say, he doesn't use computers, doesn't have email, has a mobile phone that he never uses, but people ring him. He's, he's effectively... It's, 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 it sounds like deliberate curmudgeonliness, really. But I think, uh, yeah, well, it's definitely... Yeah, he, is, he can be quite grumpy, although I have to say, uh, he, he is f- fantastic company, a very kind man, I, I think he's very, very, he's very compassionate. He'll give, he'll walk down the street and give, you know, hundreds of pounds to, to somebody, you know, in a doorway. Yeah. Uh, very generous with with his time, with his money. I, I found him uh, very kind to me, uh, very and very caring, very compassionate. When something happens to somebody, it, it affects him. Yeah. If if somebody else has bad news, it affects him. So he is a humanitarian, you know, and and what makes him tick. Um, there isn't a lot of motivation there, and, and, and I would I would argue with anyone who says there is. I mean, I think you know he 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 just accepts. There is a kind of acceptance, I think, with him. You know, and I think one of the things that I found surprising is how much he how easily he appears to accept his physical um, disability. Now, like I say, can't yeah. walk, can't do anything really, um, and and does need care. So uh, he appears to accept that. So part of his personality is kind of acceptance. Well, all that all that comes across fantastically in the book. I was I was really knocked out with it. I mean, most memoirs tend to kind of concentrate on either the story or the art or whatever, and you have a really good balance in the book between your understanding of what the music, uh, where it came from, and how it was recorded, and the effect uh, of listening to it, plus the um, extraordinary complications of his own life. He's absolutely fascinating, and it's a great book. And um, we wish you. All the best with it. Thank you so much for talking to us. And um, No, thank you for having us on. Not at all. There is a furious devotion. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 